Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Welcome to TGI Crime Day. I'm your host, Taylor, and I'm so glad you're here with me today. This is part two of the mysterious death of Phoebe Hansjuk. So if you didn't watch or listen to part one, go do that before this one or you're going to miss out on half the information and be lost. I'll have part one linked in the show notes or in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. Before we get into the rest of this case, I wanted to remind you that you can subscribe to my channel on YouTube uh, for the video version of this podcast or find the audio only version anywhere you get your podcasts. Just search TGI Crime Day, you'll find it. Make sure you're subscribed. I really appreciate it. It's very helpful. Um, you also can find me on Instagram and TikTok at TGI Crime Day, and you can send me your hometown mystery stories, your spooky ghost stories, your favorite urban legend, everything true crime and true crime adjacent, any like spooky tales, send those to TGICrimeDate at gmail.com. All of that information will be down in the description or in the show notes. Um, I really want to do a listener episode, so send me your stories because I want to hear from you because otherwise I'm just like a person talking to a microphone and that makes me kind of sad. Okay, moving on. <laughs> to give you a quick recap from part one, again, if you didn't listen to part one, go watch or listen to that now so you know what's going on before we jump into this part. As a quick reminder, if you did listen but need a refresher like I do, Phoebe Hansjuk was living with her boyfriend, Anthony Ant Hample, in the Valencia Apartments in Melbourne, Australia. Phoebe was 24 years old, Ant was 40, and they had been dating for about a year and a half um, when Phoebe was found at the bottom of a trash chute in their apartment building. In the weeks leading up to Phoebe's death, she and Ant had broken up and gotten back together four different times. Their relationship had been on the rocks for a while, and Phoebe's friends and family were all really worried about her. Phoebe had struggled with drug and alcohol abuse for many years at this point, but after going on a bit of a bender for a couple of days, she had talked to her family about getting things back on track. She mentioned multiple times to multiple people close to her that she wanted to leave Ant for good, leave the job she was in, and start fresh. She was making plans to move out of Ant's place and to go to India to do some volunteer work. She seemed very hopeful and ready to move forward and find herself again. But when Phoebe tried to move out of Ant's place, he always talked her into coming back. There was always something that would get her back in, and the cycle would continue. When Phoebe passed away, her friends and family were completely shocked because while Phoebe had been struggling with depression and drug abuse, they simply did not believe that she would have taken her life in such an absurd way. And I think if you listened to part one, you probably agree. The police only investigated her death for a few days before deciding that there was no foul play involved and that Phoebe had put herself down the trash chute. Going down the trash chute resulted in Phoebe's foot being almost severed, causing her extreme blood loss that was eventually listed as the cause of her death. Phoebe's family was very frustrated, rightly so, with the extremely quick investigation done into the strange events surrounding Phoebe's death. Phoebe's grandfather, Lorne, was a retired detective who decided to take a deeper look into Phoebe's death. As we get back into Phoebe's case, we're going to start with the coroner's findings in Phoebe's autopsy. Like I mentioned in part one, when Phoebe was found in the compactor room, there were trails of blood in the room on the floor. Phoebe was definitely alive when she got to the bottom of that garbage chute. So at the bottom of the trash chute, before it goes into the compactor, there is a blade that is meant to chop up larger pieces of garbage. Um, this blade definitely hit Phoebe. This caused her foot to be almost completely severed, which caused her to lose a lot of blood and eventually that led to her death. She had other cuts and scrapes and some bruising, but not as much as you would expect. The coroner, Dr. Matthew Lynch, found that her body had more injuries to the bottom half and all of her injuries were consistent with a fall through a narrow space. He did note that she had some bruising on her upper arms and neck that looked more like finger bruising than something that would have happened during her fall down this trash chute. There was no sexual trauma or trauma to her head or neck specifically. Toxicology reports showed that she had a mix of sleeping pills, antidepressants, cough medicine, and alcohol in her system. Her blood alcohol level was 0.16, which is more than three times the legal driving limit. And remember, Phoebe was said to be very sensitive to alcohol and would get clumsy after just a couple of glasses of wine. Dr. Lynch was surprised that Phoebe didn't have more defensive wounds to her arms, maybe to try to stop herself from falling or to brace herself through the chute. He pointed out that those defensive wounds wouldn't be there if she had been unconscious when she went into that chute. A blood test was done on the blood found in the apartment and in the trash chute room on the 12th floor, and it was a positive match for Phoebe. 
There was also some blood found in the elevator and the parking garage, but that blood was found to belong to one of the construction workers who had been doing some work on the building that day and was injured on the job. Another strange detail that just adds more questions to this situation is that Phoebe's jeans were down around her knees, and no one has ever been able to determine exactly how this happened. If Phoebe went into the chute feet first, which is what everyone's assuming, she would have had to go in feet first if she had put herself in there. Um, her pants wouldn't have been pulled downwards. If she were going down head first, then maybe that movement could have pulled them off. That makes more sense to me, but I'm not a detective. I don't know. I'm just investigogler, okay? Like my favorite Spencer Henry from the Cult Leader podcast always says, I'm just a dumb bitch with a microphone, okay? I'm just guessing here. It just seems weird to me that her pants were like down if she had slid down feet first. If she slid down head first, then that could have maybe... I don't know. Speculation. Thinking out loud. Some people also believe that maybe if she had been dragging herself around the compactor room, they could have slid down if she was sort of army crawling through the room, which I guess could make sense. Within hours of her death, police were already assuming that it was a suicide. And maybe this was why they didn't bother to do a thorough investigation because their minds were already made up. The night of her death, they didn't remove Aunt or Phoebe's electronics from the apartment. They didn't even bother to check the computer that had Phoebe's blood on the keyboard. Later, Phoebe's brother, Tom, was able to log into her email and found that every single message in that email had been deleted. As I mentioned in part one, the detectives didn't bother to collect that CCTV footage that would have shown if there had been another person involved in Phoebe's death. They didn't even take any official statements from anyone working in the building that day or any of the residents until January 2012, a year after Phoebe's death. Eventually, Phoebe's grandpa, Lorne, again, who was a retired detective, contacted Eric, the building manager, to see if he could get the actual hard drive from the CCTV cameras, and when Eric went to look for this hard drive, it had just mysteriously disappeared. It had been there, the police definitely didn't collect it, but suddenly it was just gone and no one had any idea what happened to it or how it could have gone missing. Speaking of missing things, Phoebe's Nokia phone was never recovered. It also vanished into thin air. As a reminder, Phoebe had two phones, her iPhone that Aunt paid for and a Nokia that she kept mainly so that she could have all of her old phone numbers and not have to transfer everything from the Nokia to the iPhone. So her Nokia is just gone that we know that she'd been contacting people on like the day before. Vanished into thin air. No idea. They also didn't question any of Aunt's staff. He owned a business. He had business meetings that day that he was at that people could have confirmed or denied if he was there and what times he left but the police did not interview any of these people until months later. All it took was one mention of Phoebe's mental health for the police to decide that they didn't need to dig any deeper into it, including if it were even possible for Phoebe to get into that shoot on her own. Lauren made a list of all the things that should have been done differently in the investigation, and he brought all of this up when he had a meeting with Sergeant Clancy, so I'm just going to give you the bullet points of that list. Investigators hadn't taken CCTV footage that they knew would be recorded over. The building manager, Eric, even tried to tell them that they needed to get that footage the day of Phoebe's death or it would be gone. It seems to me like that is an obvious first step out again. What do I know? They didn't interview Eric about the security system or how the key fobs worked in the building. They didn't interview Ant's staff to verify his movements that day. Was he in the office? Was he at meetings? Etc. They hadn't seized her computer. They brushed off the broken glass in the apartment, and they ignored the bruises on her wrists and arms. They didn't find the blood found in the apartment or on the doorframe of the garbage chute room on the 12th floor strange. They hadn't even looked more into the possibility of someone being physically able to get into the trash chute, other than taking a quick look at it and being like, yep, it's possible she would fit. Lauren also raised concerns about Phoebe's iPhone. Aunt said that it had been taken to a repair shop the day before Phoebe's death but apparently she sent that strange text to her family at 10.30 a.m. So did Aunt take it with him when he went for work? If so, she couldn't have sent that text. And they didn't look at her phone records to see if someone else had been contacting Phoebe that day. Maybe she had met up with someone. Maybe there was someone else involved here. They didn't even look. Lauren brought up all of these issues, but Detective Clancy was unmoved. He was satisfied with the ruling that it was a suicide which is insane to me, uh, he said that nothing had been discovered to suggest that anyone else was involved, to which I say, how would you know? You didn't check anything. yikes a bikes Phoebe's family had to go through a lot of their own investigating and fight for justice for Phoebe. One step of this was that Lauren wanted to prove once and for all that Phoebe did not put herself in that garbage chute. Lauren conducted a test with a team of people, including Detective Brendan Payne. Detective Payne was very dedicated to helping Phoebe's family find answers. Such a relief to see someone finally on their side in this case, so they decided to conduct this test because the police hadn't done it. 
Phoebe's friends, Sarah and Viv, agreed to help, and they were around the same height and body type as Phoebe. And just to clarify, if you aren't familiar with a trash chute in an apartment building, uh, basically there's a trash room on each floor that has an opening with a flap for people to throw their garbage away. It goes down a big long chute to the compactor, the compactor chops it up, and then it dumps it into the garbage room on the first floor of the building. For me personally, my only reference to this is from watching Friends. Anyone else? Anyways. So to give you a visual, the bottom of the trash chute is 67 centimeters, about 26 inches from the ground. It has a heavy door that opens at an angle, and this door is spring-loaded and has a mechanism that is meant to close it quickly to keep large objects, like a person, from getting into the trash chute. You would have to hold open the door with one hand and throw the garbage in it with the other to keep it open. And when the door is fully open, the opening is only about a meter or about three feet from the ground. So the door opens from the top with a flap that has supporting panels on the side. I hope I'm explaining this correctly for the audio only listeners. Imagine like the way that you open an oven. Yeah. So it's not a door that like slides up or to the sides where then there's just an open hole. You have to pull it open and hold it open or else it will close. And then around this door is a smooth steel frame that's only about a centimeter thick. It's not enough to act as a handhold if someone were trying to climb into the chute. There's nothing else in that room that could have been used to steady yourself on or to climb on to get inside of the chute. And I'd assume they'd made it that way so that this couldn't happen, so that someone wouldn't be able to climb into it because that's obviously a huge safety hazard. Lauren asked Sarah, who wore a safety harness, to try to climb into the chute. Sarah was very fit and, of course, sober. Remember, Phoebe had been drinking a lot. She had a lot of different things in her system. Her blood alcohol level was three times over the driving limit. She probably wasn't feeling super steady at that moment. Sarah has very long legs, and so she was able to pull open the chute with one hand and get one leg up and over the side of the flap. But when it came to getting her second leg in, it was really, really difficult. There was nowhere to grab on to lift herself up, and the door sits at a weird angle and is meant to slam shut. After a lot of work, Sarah managed to get her other leg up and into the chute, but then it kept slamming into her back um, and, like, her lower back and her shoulder blades, which would have probably left some pretty intense marks. She went into the chute about up to her waist, and then they pulled her back out. One of the things that they noticed was that to maneuver herself into the chute, she was touching the wall and the, the sides of the chute and leaving fingerprints all over it. It's made of stainless steel, so it looked really dirty and had handprints smudged everywhere by the time she got herself in there. The night of Phoebe's death, there were no fingerprints on that door. In fact, it looked like it had been wiped clean. Viv also tried and had the exact same issues. Everyone involved in this test had a hard time believing that Phoebe could have gotten herself into that chute, especially as intoxicated as she was. When Lauren brought this up with the police, they said that drunk people can be very determined once they set their sights on doing something. But for Lauren, he felt this was more about capacity, not focus. Multiple people close to Phoebe talked about how clumsy she would get when intoxicated. Lauren met up with Neil Bone from Waztec, the company that manufactures the chutes, and asked him to make an exact replica of the chute so that they could actually test it and test it safely. Neil agreed and said that he was surprised that police had never contacted him for a statement, and he was disappointed that he hadn't been given a chance to show that the equipment couldn't be used in such a horrible way. It probably made the company look really bad, and they didn't even get a chance to explain how the compactor was supposed to work, um, the safety measures that they built into it to make sure that things like this don't happen, or how unlikely it was that someone could get in there and down the chute as easily as the police had made it seem. Neil created a replica, and they set it up on a platform with a soft landing at the bottom. Sarah was first, and she tried to go down the chute feet first, but her shoulders were too wide to go down the chute, even if her arms were up above her head. So she was able to wiggle herself in there about up to her chest, and then she was stuck and couldn't go back down. The chute was not very big. I think when I first heard about Phoebe's story, I was imagining, like, a chute that looked like a slide, but this chute was only about 14 inches wide, which is not a lot of space and really difficult to maneuver into and down. Viv went next, and she had to sit on the edge of the door to get herself situated to where she would have been able to slide down and not slam her hands closed in that um, automatic closing door. When she sat on the side of it the way that she did, the sides buckled from her weight, and the flap tipped backwards and she almost fell out of it. Viv had to slide her body into the chute using one arm to hold the flap open, because again, it was spring-loaded, it kept slamming on her fingers, and then she had to keep her arms up above her head because the chute was so tight, and her arms were stuck above her head she wouldn't have been able to bend them and bring them down to her sides 
later, they tried to say that Phoebe could have braced herself to slide down the slide, but she couldn't have moved her arms. Once your arms are up, they're stuck. In fact, the coroner had said that he believed Phoebe had gone down the chute with her arms at her side, which again would have been physically impossible because it was such a tight space. And also, there were fingerprints everywhere, but none were found at the scene when Phoebe died. There are just too many things that should have been present if Phoebe had gotten herself into that chute. And remember, that door was also slamming into the girl's backs as they were trying to get in there, and there was no signs of bruising on Phoebe's back. Sarah wasn't able to get herself all the way into the chute, but Viv was, and she had to try pretty hard not to get her fingers slammed in the door because, again, it was built to slam shut. Phoebe had no bruising, no injuries to her hands. The last part of this experiment was to have someone else put the girls into the chute. Um, there is video footage of these tests, and I'll be honest with you, watching the clips of it was really upsetting and really difficult to watch. Um, watching someone lift Phoebe's friends, who were, by the way, incredible. I can't, I don't know if I would be, like, brave enough or strong enough to put myself through that and to put themselves into what must have been a very upsetting and very traumatizing situation to test this and figure out what happened to their friend. Amazing. Amazing job. Um, but watching someone maneuver Viv into the chute, um, basically as like a fireman carry, he like threw her up over his shoulder and then slipped her into the chute and how easy it was for this guy to pick them up and just put them in there after they had each struggled and struggled to hold themselves up and to not hold onto the sidewall and to not get slammed on their back and to not get stuck without falling or, you know, doing all these ridiculous gymnastics to get into the chute. And then someone could just throw them over his shoulder and put them straight in there. It was really upsetting and very difficult to watch because you can't help but think about Phoebe. And if you've seen those clips before, it solidifies to me that Phoebe didn't put herself in there. It makes no sense. It just makes no sense. Um, we don't know for sure who else was involved, but I'm sorry. I don't believe, I'm just going to say it right now. I don't believe that there is any way that they could have ruled out so quickly that there was no foul play and no other involvement. Not that we know who it was. We have no idea. There could be many people who could have been involved. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm rambling because I'm mad. Uh, moving on. Neil also did his own experiments with the compactor using timber, and when the compactor blade hit thinner timber about six millimeters thick, it snapped right in half, no problem. A larger piece of timber about 10 centimeters by five centimeters was dented, but the blade retracted and came down once the timber was gone. And Neil said that no one could have gone through that chute in one piece if it had been set to automatic. Neil determined that the only way Phoebe could have passed through without being crushed was if that switch had been set to manual. Again, the question of her injuries, or lack thereof, was brought up because if that machine were set to auto, to sum it up the best way possible without being graphic, the damage would have been a lot worse. The crime scene photos showed that the setting was on automatic, so how had she made it down the chute? This would have required someone going into the compactor room and changing the setting to manual and then set it back to automatic after Phoebe fell through that chute. It's also kind of confusing because I guess the chute had been having issues and it had some work that was done on it, but it was never checked to see if it had been fixed or not because there had been so much craziness happening in the building that day. So it's set to automatic, but it could have just been a malfunction with the compactor. We don't know because they did not check. And of course, it would be very easy to prove or disprove if anyone else had been in that room to set it to manual if anyone had bothered to get the CCTV footage of the doorway to the compactor, but that's far too much to ask. Also, I want to pause really quick um, and just say that I am not like shitting on police work or detectives. There are plenty, plenty, plenty of amazing, wonderful, beautiful human beings who are doing their job correctly and doing their job for the right reasons, etc., etc. The problem is that there are far too many that are not doing things the right way and that lead to situations like this. And of course, no one can get right every single time. Police officers and detectives are human beings. Mistakes are bound to happen. But with this specific case, it's like, I I would know that we need to get the CCTV footage. You know what I mean? Like, I think there are a lot of us that feel that way. And um, we're just invested Googlers, okay? So I just wanted to make that very clear. I appreciate the police who are doing their job the correct way. And the ones that are doing things like this, I hope they have the day they deserve. Okay, moving on. That's my one rant for this episode, I think. Yikes of bikes, seriously. Okay, um, eventually, 
There was a new sergeant that was put into place, and Lauren, Natalie, and Len met up with him in the hopes of getting a better investigation done into Phoebe's death. Again, this family is incredible. It's awful that they were even in a position where they had to do all of this, uh, but they were willing to do it, and they're amazing. So they met with Detective Brendan Payne, who was a lot more open to helping them than Sergeant Clancy had been. On March 10th, 2011, Detective Payne got a warrant to take Ant's laptop. Kind of frustrating because it had been months at that point, but he did take the laptop, and it was something. He did some digging. Um, one strange thing did come up. A coroner's office form 25, which is for the release of a body. This was strange because it had been downloaded in October of 2010, a few months before Phoebe's death. Why? Why would you have that downloaded? Ant denied ever downloading that form. And he basically told police that he didn't have a reason to download that form and reminded them that Phoebe also used that computer trying to suggest that Phoebe downloaded the form. Why would she have downloaded it? If you didn't have a reason, why would she? And the conclusion that police made of that was that the date on the download must have been correct. Even though Ant didn't say that he had downloaded it after Phoebe died, he said he never downloaded it. Why are we trying to make excuses for these things? Detective Payne also searched over the records of both of Phoebe's phones, Ant's phone and the apartment landline. Someone had erased all of Phoebe's texts and phone calls. He also dug into Phoebe's iPhone that had been taken to a repair place at some point uh, during the week of her death. So this whole situation with her two phones is really confusing. If I understand correctly, they were able to get the records of both her Nokia and her iPhone, but those records wouldn't have shown um, like if there had been text messages sent or what those text messages said. Um, and then when they did get her iPhone into custody, everything on it had been deleted. And this iPhone had allegedly been taken to be repaired at some point the week of her death. Ant's first story was that he had taken the phone with him on Wednesday morning, the day before Phoebe died. But that calls into question how it would have been possible for her to send that weird text to her family that morning. As a reminder, this text was sent to Aunt, Phoebe's parents, her grandma, her boss, and her brothers. This text said, quote, Hi family, I'm in bed about to sleep, and when I wake, I will transform into the most incredible human being, not... I will go to hospital. It's safer there, and I hear the special tonight is tomato soup. Delicious. Nutritious. I love you all very much, but not enough to send an individual text. Sorry about that, but time is sleep, and I must be on my way. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Life is but a dream. XO. End quote. Later, he said that he thought maybe he took the phone on Thursday morning, but he could just never remember which day exactly it was. Detective Payne tracked down the cell phone repairman who didn't have paperwork that showed the phone being brought in. However, there was a receipt from the day that Aunt's dad, George, picked up the phone, but there wasn't a receipt for when it was dropped off. So we know the day that he picked it up. It just is weird. Um, but apparently that one receipt was good enough for the courts later, so I guess that's that. Eventually, they did get some statements from the other residents of the Valencia who were able to kind of shed some light on that day a little bit. Um, however, it was months later and people didn't really remember everything. One witness from the Valencia said that she had been in the elevator around 4 p.m. on the day of Phoebe's death with a man that she had never seen in the building before. He was wearing a light-colored top and dark pants and carrying an object about 20 centimeters wide and 10 centimeters long. He got into the elevator in the lobby and pressed the button for the 12th floor without a fob. Remember, there was this whole system where they had these key fobs that you had to have to get in the building, in the elevator, and to the specific floor that you lived on. Without that fob, you can't just walk in and go up the elevator to any floor. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to be super repetitive, but I just want to make sure that you have context if you forgot certain things about this case from part one. So if this guy got into the elevator and went up to the 12th floor, it meant that he had to have been buzzed in by someone on the 12th floor. Later, police would release a photo taken from the very small amount of CCTV footage that was able to be recovered and ask the public for their help to identify the man who was shown in this footage. Police interviewed the other three residents on the 12th floor and asked if anyone had buzzed the man in that day and they said that they hadn't. No one was ever able to identify this person and it's speculated that maybe this person had been in the building to see Phoebe. Beth, who was the manager that found Phoebe in the compactor room, took a few weeks off of work to calm down and to get back in the swing of things. When she returned, Aunt's best friend Christo kept visiting her at the Valencia. I believe Christo also lived in this building, but he had never acknowledged Beth before, but he came to see her after she returned to work, bearing gifts. First, it was a bottle of wine and chocolates, and he asked her about that night and what happened when she found Phoebe. This was really upsetting to Beth, who was trying to forget that night. 
He told her that Phoebe had killed herself and was, quote, beyond help. She didn't want help, end quote. I believe Christo visited Beth more than once, and eventually she told Lauren that this whole thing had made her very uncomfortable because she was just trying to move forward. The thing that's difficult in Phoebe's case is that there are things that happened before and after that are small and maybe weird on their own, but not necessarily red flags. But when you look at the whole picture and you put all of these things together, it's a lot of weird things and a lot of weird coincidences that can't really be explained. Unfortunately, the only people who seem to think all of this evidence from the lack of fingerprints around the trash chute, the physicality of someone getting into the chute on their own, the weird cell phone situation. None of that was enough to set alarm bells off in Phoebe's investigation. Do I think that there's enough evidence to point to a specific person in Phoebe's death? Not necessarily, but I do think that there are enough weird things and enough evidence that it seems like someone else was involved and it doesn't seem like Phoebe voluntarily entered the chute feet first all on her own. Especially because there has never been an incident like Phoebe's with a trash chute like this reported in Australia. Not one. Luckily, the work Lauren was doing along with the dedication from Detective Payne allowed them to start a petition for a coronial inquest two years after Phoebe's death. The path for this coronial inquest was yet another thing that took years. There are a lot of specifics that go into getting a coroner's inquest done, and um, I'm going to let someone much more versed in the subject explain it. This is a paragraph from the book Into the Darkness by Robin Bowles, and it says, quote, The Victorian Coroners Act 2008 sets out the criteria that makes it necessary to report a death in Victoria to the coroner. The first is that the death appears to have been unexpected, unnatural, or violent, or to have resulted directly or indirectly from an accident or injury. Once a death is reported, the coroner's key task is to establish a cause. If police and medicos have identified the cause of death to the coroner's satisfaction, then he or she can determine that the death isn't reportable, even if it was initially reported as such and no inquest will ever be held. At the other extreme, an inquest must be held if the coroner suspects that the death resulted from a criminal act, such as homicide. In the middle is a large area of discretion where the coroner can decide whether or not a hearing is required and, if so, whether it is an open inquest. The coroner may rule that a hearing can be done on papers, which means the determination is based on written reports from police, medicos, and others rather than by hearing oral evidence. An open inquest, by contrast, is a public investigation." End quote. Another hard thing with pursuing this inquest is the cost. This isn't something that's free. So if someone doesn't have their case correctly investigated, their loved ones have to come up with buckets and buckets of money to pay for it to be done. So Phoebe's family, of course, wanted an inquest. This didn't make sense. But they were told that they would need a legal rep that would cost an insane amount of money. $60,000 minimum just to get things going, and there was no guarantee that the inquest would even take place. It didn't help that Ant's parents were well-known and very influential in law circles, and they had connections everywhere. Eventually, they found a lawyer who would work with them for a more reasonable price. Simon Magolia would help them as much as he could to get the coroner to open an inquest. The Hansjucks raised 16000 through fundraising. They had a fundraising site and a Facebook page where people could share their memories and donate money. People loved Phoebe so much and they were ready to rally together and figure out what happened. On December 5th, 2012, Natalie, Jeanette, and Len attended the initial hearing. Ant was represented by Elizabeth Brimer, who had worked with his dad in the 90s. Ant and his team had initially supported the inquest, but when they got to the hearing, Elizabeth surprised them all by saying that a full inquest wasn't necessary because there was no basis for the court to determine a murder may have occurred. Which, by the way, it wasn't just to determine if this was a homicide. There are multiple other things that could have led to her death that need to be investigated. Okay. Then the chief coroner decided that instead of taking oral submissions and setting an inquest date, doing the whole trial where everyone sits on the stand and explains exactly their side of the story, he decided that everyone could instead just send in their written submissions, their written statements. Phoebe's family was very upset, rightfully so, because the coroner had just ignored the whole point of this court date, and Ant's lawyers had just ignored the whole point of this court date. They had traveled about nine hours and took a bunch of time off of work and did all of that fundraising to get this to happen, only to have the coroner tell them that this could have all been handled through the mail. Lauren, who continued to do the absolute most, sent a letter to the chief coroner and let him know that he didn't appreciate the way he handled the situation. One paragraph of that letter said, quote, It was bad enough that the initial investigation of this highly suspicious death was mishandled by members of the homicide squad. 
They still, unaccountably, cling to their premature suicide assessment, which will be ultimately shown in open court to have been ill-considered, end quote. He finished this letter by suggesting that Coroner White was, quote, inappropriately trying to minimize the case and that this wasn't in the best interests of finding true justice. The chief coroner essentially stood up for Coroner White's decision and basically said that what Coroner White said was the final say, that's that. At first, the media was hesitant to speak about Phoebe's mysterious death because they were told that it was a suicide and they took that at face value. Again, Lauren fought as hard as he could for Phoebe and finally, some media outlets started reporting how strange it was and even broadcast the videos that Lauren did of that experiment. The public outcry was finally enough to make some moves. Again, I hate that so many people have to advocate this hard and beg for media coverage for people to get mad enough that the police take it seriously and something is done. It's absurd. On March 26, 2013, the coroner surprised Phoebe's family by agreeing to open an inquest, even though Ant had put in an application to request that there was no inquest. The coroner didn't feel strongly that a homicide had been committed, but thought that this cause of death was strange enough to warrant an open investigation. The solicitor also noted that the inquest was not a criminal trial. The coroner cannot make any statement that a person is or may be guilty of an offense. All he can do is notify the director of public prosecutions that a person known to the court might be worth taking another look at. So this hearing isn't to point the finger at anybody. This hearing is to see if there needs to be more of an investigation into a suspicious death. A directions hearing was scheduled for May 1st of 2013, and the inquest would follow in August. On March 27th, 2013, Natalie put an update on PhoebeHandsJuck.com that explained, um, quote, The purpose of the inquest is to establish the findings required by Section 67 of the Act, which includes the cause of death and the circumstances in which the death occurred, end quote. In August of 2013, the inquest finally started. And of course, the purpose of this is to determine the actual cause of death. In Phoebe's case, there were three options. Option one, accidental death. With the amount of drugs and alcohol in Phoebe's system, including the Stillnox sleeping pills, this could have caused events that led to Phoebe's death without death being her intention. Option number two is, of course, suicide. Phoebe's mental state was brought up, her conversations about suicide with family members, her use of antidepressants, and her phone calls to her psychiatrist in the days before her death. But it was clear from her autopsy that she didn't overdose on drugs. And it was odd that someone who was such an avid writer wouldn't leave a note. And of course, it made absolutely no sense that she would have committed suicide by putting herself into a garbage chute. Option number three, homicide. Phoebe had bruising on her body that Dr. Lynch had described as consistent with grip marks. There was broken glass and blood in the apartment, along with Lauren's experiment to see how difficult it was for someone to climb into the chute on their own, but how relatively easy it would have been for a second person to lift someone into the chute. Ant had representation from a man named Bob Galbally, who is a big deal, huge lawyer. Um, his website describes him, quote, practicing exclusively in criminal defense law since 1974. Why would they need a criminal defense lawyer? if it's not a criminal case that they're investigating and insisting is suicide. Bob, of course, had been a friend of Ant's dad, George, for decades. Right off the bat, Ant's team demanded that certain witnesses not be questioned and for certain statements not to be shared because they felt it was slanderous and irrelevant. If you want to read the full explanation of the inquest, again, the book Into the Darkness or the Phoebe's Fall podcast are great resources for that. They go over everything. But there is so much that happened in this inquest that if I were to sum up every single detail, we would be here for seven hours. Um, so I'm going to just give you some highlights. Both Beth and Eric, the managers at the Valencia, were called for testimony. And they went over all the ins and outs of the billing access, the key fobs, etc. As we've already established, it's very difficult for people to access the apartments at the Valencia because of these key fobs, which is a great safety feature in my opinion, but made this really tricky. Eric was asked question after question after question about how these fobs work, who had access to the master fobs that could get anyone onto any floor, etc. It was established that the fob had been used when Phoebe returned to the apartment after the fire alarm went off, but after that, no one had gone up to the 12th floor with a fob until Aunt arrived back at the apartment at 6.05 p.m. There was some speculation that it was possible that one of the workers doing maintenance had a master key fob that day, but there weren't any specific stops on the 12th floor with that master fob. However, more hypotheticals, of course, were brought up that someone could have entered a certain floor and then traveled between the floors using the fire escape. 
Also, if I understand correctly, it seems like if someone buzzed an apartment from the lobby, there wasn't necessarily any kind of an indicator on the floor that the person buzzed them up. So essentially, they were just trying to establish if someone besides Ant had visited Phoebe that day. And from what I've read, there were two glasses of wine out, the one that was broken and bloodied, and one that wasn't. But these glasses weren't taken for evidence or brushed for fingerprints or anything. Ant was questioned about their relationship at the inquiry, and he spoke about how they had those few times where Phoebe moved out, but they never officially broke up, according to him. She would leave, but she would come back a few days later, and he didn't feel like they were officially breaking up anytime soon. He said that he had tried to express concern for Phoebe's drinking habits, but said that she wasn't all that interested in getting better. And he said that whenever he would bring this up, she would get very agitated and aggressive. Ant's lawyer pointed out Phoebe's behaviors leading up to her death. Obviously, Phoebe wasn't in the best state of mind. She'd been drinking, she'd been doing a lot of drugs in the few days before her death, um, and then she'd also made that uh, call to her psychiatrist asking for an emergency last-minute meeting. Bob brought up all of these things to Lauren during his questioning, and Lauren agreed that Phoebe could have very well been in a state of distress and not in the best place mentally. I don't think anyone tried to deny that. During Ant's questioning, the iPhone was brought up, and again, he couldn't say exactly when he'd taken it for the repair. There was evidence from police that Ant had shown them Phoebe's iPhone the night of her death because he'd said the Nokia phone was missing, but a phone was definitely shown to the police that night because he was like, she left her phone and keys and purse here. They didn't take it for processing or anything like that, but then later he says that he didn't have the phone with him that night because he had taken it to be repaired. Around and around and around, things went, trying to nail down when that phone went for the repair. Bottom line is this. Aunt's dad, George, picked up and paid for the iPhone repair on December 7th and then took it to the police. When the police got it, there was an analysis done that showed there was nothing on this phone. There was then more confusion about whether there had been a SIM card in the phone and where that SIM card could have ended up. That phone would have shown calls, texts, who Phoebe was in contact with the day of her death. A ton of important information that was suddenly gone and no one could come up with an explanation for how it was gone or why it was gone. Because apparently, the reason the iPhone was taken for repair was because the battery hadn't been holding a charge. So first, there are some police records that say that Ant had the iPhone with him that night. But then we hear that Ant took it to be repaired on Thursday. Then Wednesday. Then Thursday. No receipts. Why in the world? So then they asked Ant where the phone was now. Where did it end up? And what happened to the SIM card? And he said he didn't hang on to it. And that the phone had been reformatted and given to someone who worked for him. And that's just... That's it. There's no, there's all this confusion and no like satisfying end to what happened to that phone. It's like too bad. Nothing can be done. Bummer. Phoebe's finances were looked at, which we discussed a little bit in part one. It was obvious Phoebe didn't have a ton of money and most of the expenses were taken care of by aunt who had a very successful business. Phoebe was working a few days a week at another ad agency owned by one of aunt's friends. And according to aunt, he knew that Phoebe struggled a little bit with the finances, and while they had a plan for Phoebe to pay him um, $150 per week in rent if she was short on money or needed to push off a payment, he said that he was fine with that. However, in the inquest, a text from Aunt to Phoebe was brought up that said, quote, Also, don't forget you have bills to pay, and I'm not lending you any more money, so be sure to get to work, end quote. Um, I don't know what else was on Aunt's phone because apparently they were able to pull some of their text messages. While they didn't have Phoebe's phone to prove anything, they definitely had Aunt's, and that's like the only text that gets brought up. And I will give credit where credit's due. Aunt didn't try to paint Phoebe as someone who was suicidal. He didn't say that she'd threatened suicide or anything like that. He said that she had never directly mentioned suicide to him, but he speculated based on her mood and drinking leading up to her death that he felt it could have been possible that it was a suicide. When Natalie's partner Russell was called to the stand, and remember Phoebe visited Russell late one night when she'd been out and didn't want to go home and end up in a fight with Aunt, um, Russell mentioned something that really stood out to me. He said that Phoebe had told him that she loved Aunt to bits, but that she still wanted to leave him because of how he behaved when she wasn't on top of her game. And this further points to Phoebe feeling less than, and like she had told her psychiatrist, Aunt sometimes made her feel stupid or that she wasn't living up to his expectations. Another big thing that was heavily discussed in the inquest was the Stillnox sleeping pills. Stillnox is basically the generic version of Ambien, and Ambien has a lot of different side effects. People have reported sleep cleaning, sleep cooking. Sometimes people become very aggressive or much more outgoing than usual while taking Ambien. And most of the side effects are linked to things that people do daily, and that can get really scary when that turns into people like getting in the car and driving recklessly because, of course, they're asleep and they don't know what's going on, but they're just doing these like 
autopilot movements. There have been reports of people jumping out of windows or off of balconies while on Ambien, and there was a pharmacologist who was interviewed as part of the inquest, but not a sleep expert, which would have probably been helpful. But in the Phoebe's Fall podcast, they did have a sleep expert who was very familiar with the side effects of Stillnox and Ambien, and she said that Stillnox on its own can still cause hallucinations, memory loss, along with side effects we already talked about, sleep driving, sleep eating. And the thing is that the amount of Stillnox Phoebe took along with that alcohol would have most likely left her very disoriented and very confused, which is why this expert, along with many others, find it very difficult to believe that Phoebe could have climbed into the garbage chute, especially because it's something so far out of the norm for what she would have been doing. Like I said, most of the time, these weird things that people do are similar to things that they do in everyday life. And there's not a time that Phoebe would have been climbing into a garbage chute. So why would her brain go there? After the inquest ended, it was another 16 months, which would have been four years after Phoebe's death. Coroner White concluded, quote, I find that Phoebe climbed into the trash chute in an unconscious state with a level of motor control in place or at the very least, which she was deeply confused and quite unable to think in a rational manner. Phoebe's long-term enthusiasm for climbing and undertaking physically challenging activities was a factor in this event, end quote. The coroner's inquest was closed as an accidental death. This was devastating to Phoebe's family, and they felt that Coroner White had already made up his mind before the inquest even happened, and they felt that he conducted it in a way that would support his preconceived decision. They had been hoping for an outcome that would leave the case as open, so that if in the future more evidence came out or they were able to do further investigation to support some kind of third-party involvement, the case would still be open and could be investigated. Once it's closed, that's it. There is a process where they could ask it to be reopened again, but just like the first time around, it would be extremely expensive and very, very difficult to do. The coroner's counsel assistant, Deborah Semensma, um, had tried to get Coroner White to rule it open because she felt that there was not enough evidence to show that it was suicide, homicide, or accidental. There were too many weird things at play to wrap it up with a nice bow and call it finished. And according to the Phoebe's Fall podcast, it's highly unusual for a coroner to overlook their counsel's recommendations. Deborah Semensma also stated that she didn't feel there was enough evidence to either point to or rule out Ant as a person of interest. There was too much evidence and, again, too many inconsistencies to 100% rule him out. However, Coroner White overlooked all of this as well, and they completely cleared Ant Hamble. Just to be clear, no one is pointing fingers, no one is placing blame, and Ant said under oath that he had nothing to do with Phoebe's death. Coroner White also speculated that Phoebe had to have put herself in the chute because... If she hadn't controlled her fall by using her arms and legs to slow herself down, she would have had more internal injuries, according to him. He said that if someone had put her in the chute, she would have sustained more injuries, but completely ignored the bruising found on her upper arms and the back of her neck. Phoebe also didn't have any dirt or scrapes on her arms or legs that showed that she could have held on to the walls inside the chute while she was sliding down, which, in my opinion... If she had used her arms to control her fall, she would have been so dirty. Think about how dirty and disgusting the inside of a garbage chute has to be. Also, in Lauren's experiment, he proved how easy it would have been for someone to lift Phoebe into the chute, and he proved how difficult it was for them to put their arms down inside of the chute. Once their arms were up, they were stuck there. Phoebe's family was obviously disappointed in the accidental death ruling. Um, at that point, they had hit the end of the road. There was nothing more to be done without insane legal fees and still no guarantee that Phoebe's case would even be further investigated. So I wanted to take some time to talk about a couple of things that aren't exactly connected to Phoebe's case, but kind of are. Um, this is related to Ant and his sister Chrissy. Ant's relationship with his sister Christina, who everyone calls Chrissy, was kind of complicated from what I've read. Some people described them as having a very close relationship, while others said that it was distant and somewhat strained because Ant didn't approve of some of the choices Chrissy was making. It did seem, though, that Phoebe and Chrissy were fairly close, like I mentioned way back in part one. When Phoebe became friends with Chrissy, she sort of started to emulate her personality a little bit. And if you remember, right around the time that Phoebe started dating Ant, she dyed her hair a lot darker than she'd normally had it um, and cut it into a really cute shortcut that looked amazing on her. Um, Chrissy had that same kind of a haircut and kind of had this more like sophisticated look um, that Phoebe kind of started to take on as well. And there was a time that Chrissy let Phoebe borrow a very expensive designer gown. And one of Phoebe's friends was like, wow, that's pricey. How can Chrissy afford all these nice things? 
And apparently she drove a very nice car. She was often wearing very expensive designer items and lived in a really, really nice apartment. This friend said that Phoebe wasn't really sure exactly what Chrissy's career was, but that she made a lot of money doing it. Here's the secret. She sold cocaine. Like, a lot of it. She worked as a freelance copywriter, and that's what Chrissy said made her all of her money, but let's just call it what it is. The cocaine sales were probably the main contributor to her lifestyle. According to Aunt and Phoebe's close friend, Linda Cohen, Aunt had essentially forbidden Phoebe from being friends with Chrissy. He knew that Chrissy was involved in cocaine, something that Aunt said he did not approve of, and he didn't want Phoebe hanging out with Chrissy and her friends. In March of 2010, Phoebe had a doctor visit, and the notes from that visit said that Phoebe had used cocaine before the appointment. It's speculated that Phoebe could have gotten that cocaine from Chrissy. Eventually, Chrissy went to court on drug charges, and allegedly, she was selling drugs to some very well-known and very well-connected people in the community. It seems like this because the times that she was being investigated and supposedly watched or followed by police who were supposed to be catching her in the act of dealing drugs, she always knew it was happening. She would tell Aunt and Phoebe not to contact her, not to reach out, not to call her because she was under investigation and essentially in hiding. Then the police would eventually stop trailing her, and she would go back to regular life. But according to her ex-boyfriend, a man named Andrew, he said that she always knew when she was under these quote-unquote secret investigations. He didn't know exactly how she knew or where she was getting the tip, but she definitely knew that someone was watching her, so somebody had to have been telling her. After Phoebe's inquest, Andrew got into contact with Lorne to tell him about this stuff with Chrissy. And according to Andrew, they dated from 2010 to 2012, but eventually their relationship ended because the relationship with Chrissy, quote, had cost him a million dollars and just about ruined him, end quote. Andrew didn't use drugs and got tired of Chrissy's lifestyle. He'd bail her out when she put $75,000 on a credit card and said that her parents had bailed her out of these huge debts as well. Eventually, Andrew ended the relationship because he was tired of trying to, quote unquote, save Chrissy from herself. After the relationship ended, he reported Chrissy to the drug squad good for him, <laughs> and told them that she had always known about the investigations and that she didn't seem to be worried at all about being arrested. Andrew had given police the names of multiple people who were basically regulars for Chrissy's cocaine dealings. One of these men was arrested at a drug raid at Chrissy's apartment and served time in prison for it. This information made Lauren wonder how much Phoebe actually knew about Chrissy's drug dealing and if there was a chance that maybe one of these people had shown up at Aunt and Phoebe's apartment the day she died. Maybe one of these contacts of Chrissy's had something to do with Phoebe's death. Andrew said that Chrissy really liked Phoebe, but they didn't spend a lot of time together because Aunt and Chrissy had a very strained relationship. Andrew remembered attending a party where Aunt and Phoebe were, and Phoebe had been really upset about something, and Chrissy was the one to comfort her. He said that Phoebe had also called Chrissy crying one day, saying how badly she wanted to get away from Aunt, but that he wouldn't let her go. Lauren helped Andrew contact police again with his information, but still nothing was followed up on. Referencing the book again, Into the Darkness, the author Robin Bowles shares a conversation that she had with an officer about this situation. He confirmed that it seems like Chrissy always knew when she was under investigation. He said, quote, Hampel has a good protective network around her and rarely sells to strangers unless they are introduced by someone she knows. Infiltrating that network is quite a task, end quote. In August of 2013, Christina Hampel was arrested. Police were finally able to pull off what seemed impossible for so long. They were able to finally install a secret security camera at her home and caught three drug deals in a six-day period. One of the people she sold to was an undercover cop. They did a raid and seized nine Ziploc bags of cocaine, $12,300 in cash, believed to be proceeds of her crimes, and an aerosol can of tear gas, which is classified as a prohibited weapon. Chrissy went to court in October of 2013. She showed up looking very put together with big sunglasses and a big smile as if she was just out for a stroll and not like on trial for drug and weapons charges. Drug charges are a very serious offense in Australia and usually people are given really big punishments with quote unquote little mercy. The minimum trafficking amount that requires serious penalties in Victoria is three grams. Chrissy had nine grams at her home, probably more because that was after she had already sold some of it. So say someone was caught with three grams of cocaine. From what I understand, that is considered simple possession. They would get up to two years in prison, but if there's a higher quantity, the punishment is also much higher. Penalty for this type of possession could be up to 14 years. And remember, it's a very serious offense where little mercy should be shown in Australia is what it says. 
Chrissy also was charged with the weapons charge for tear gas, another serious offense with a maximum sentence of 14 years. But wait! Chrissy has all kinds of super helpful connections because her parents are very well connected. Chrissy's lawyer asked for some wiggle room because according to her, Chrissy was only selling drugs because she had developed such an expensive addiction that she began dealing to her friends to support her own habit. So they should take mercy on her because she was really only dealing to support her own cocaine needs. I seriously can't imagine sitting in that courtroom listening to someone say that out loud and thinking that that was a good enough defense. As for the tear gas, a friend had apparently given it to her for protection because she lived alone, and the cherry on top for why they should show mercy to Chrissy was because she was so hurt by the reporters saying such mean things about her. The press was ruining her copywriting career. By the way, Chrissy was 49 years old when this happened. The court pointed out that at her age, she should be making a lot more responsible decisions, but they did take into account her guilty plea and the embarrassment her family was facing having a well-known judge's daughter arrested for drug charges. Boo-hoo. Chrissy was sentenced to a 24 months community corrections order and given 200 hours of community service. A drug dealer that they have been trying to catch for literally years at this point that could have been like a 30-year sentence if they felt like it for the weapons charge and the drug charge. But no, 200 hours of community service and a family embarrassment was enough for that judge. Meanwhile, people with a tiny amount of weed get sentenced to unreasonably long sentences and serve it down to the very last second. But yeah, huge cocaine dealer, community service is definitely going to teach her a lesson. Oh man, stuff like that drives me crazy. Okay. So Chrissy's charges were brought up within the coroner's inquest of Phoebe's death. It is, of course, speculation, but it does add another layer of weirdness to Phoebe's case. A lot of people bring up the question, was it possible that someone close to Chrissy could have been involved in Phoebe's death? Of course, again, all speculation. Who knows? It's just another thing to add to the pile of weirdness. It appears from what Phoebe's friends have said that whether Ant had forbidden a relationship with Chrissy or not, they were pretty close. In 2016, Chrissy put a post on Facebook that I believe was later deleted. The post was a photo of Chrissy and Phoebe together, and she captioned it, quote, In loving memory, I just stumbled across my favorite pic of beautiful Phoebe. I miss you, darling. You are a fragile little flower that no one watered. You and your family were let down by the justice system and those who represent it. I only hope that one day the truth will come out so that they will have some peace, end quote. After the inquest, Ant was ready to move forward with his life. He said that he was very satisfied with the in-depth approach the coroner took and said, quote, Every day had been a battle for Phoebe, which she tried to keep from her family. She was a troubled soul and her death was such a waste, end quote. Ant said in his interview for the book Into the Darkness that he believed the reason Phoebe's death got so much publicity was because he was from a prominent family and that if he hadn't been, it would have gone unnoticed like other suicides. I'll let you make up your mind about that statement on your own. He also said that he hopes the book can, quote, shed some light on the terrible problem of depression. And he mentioned that he was doing some work behind the scenes with organizations that help people deal with depression. When the book was released in 2016, Ant was, quote unquote, happily married and said that his wife had been a tremendous support in his recovery from this whole situation. I'm not sure how long that marriage lasted, but Ant was making headlines once again in 2018. A beautiful young woman named Bailey Schneider was unfortunately found dead in her parents' home from an apparent suicide. Bailey was 25 years old and working as a model and dental assistant in Melbourne. Bailey was absolutely stunning and described as fun and treasured by her friends. She loved animals and was very, very sensitive. Like Phoebe, Bailey was an avid writer and wrote in a journal often. Also like Phoebe, Bailey generally dated older men and she had also dealt with depression that led to her coping with alcohol. Her parents said that Bailey had been going through kind of a rough patch in the months leading up to her death. She became more secretive and began working at a Melbourne strip club, um, and being in that environment had kind of introduced her to some unhealthy habits, possibly involving drugs. Although Bailey was struggling, her parents said that she had a lot of really happy times too. She was traveling for modeling shoots and enjoying family get-togethers and spending time with her friends. Around the time of her death, her parents had convinced her to move back into their family home so that she could have some time to kind of figure things out and get back on her feet. At the time of her death, Bailey was dating Aunt Hample, who was 51 at the time. Reminder, she was 25. They had been dating for about nine months, and her mom said that Bailey had kept their relationship pretty private. She rarely posted about him on social media, uh, but Bailey felt that this was a serious relationship. They'd taken multiple trips together and spent a lot of time together in those nine months. 
On June 23rd, 2018, Bailey confided in her mom that she and Aunt had had a pretty big fight the day before, and she was really upset about it. Her parents, Cameron and Sabine, comforted her, and she had calmed down by the time they left to go shopping for a couple of hours. Bailey's parents arrived home a while later and found Bailey unconscious on the kitchen floor with a cord from her bedroom around her neck. The whole scene felt off to her parents. Um, she was in kind of a weird place within the kitchen. Her head was at a weird position near the corner of a cupboard, um, and the cord around her neck had come from Bailey's bedroom. Her family was shocked. They had only been gone for a couple of hours, and to come home and find their daughter dead from an apparent suicide again, with no notes, no clues, was shocking. Later, it was determined that she did have a high blood alcohol level and some cocaine in her system. The extremely odd part of all of this was that they couldn't figure out how Bailey could have done this to herself. When police were called, they treated it right off the bat as if it were a suicide. They didn't take her phone into evidence until much later, which would have given them a huge clue into who she was talking with and what was going through her head before she died, but they didn't bother to look at it. Um, and her parents were also confused as to how she could have hung herself in their kitchen. There is nowhere in that kitchen that would have been tall enough for Bailey to hang herself. While there was no obvious sign of a struggle, it still didn't seem like Bailey could have done this to herself. But just like in Phoebe's case, police took one look at the scene and heard about her recent behavior with drugs and alcohol and quickly determined that it must have been a suicide. At first, there was not going to be an inquest, but Bailey's parents, just like Phoebe's, simply couldn't accept the strange circumstances around her death and the lack of investigation. Much like Phoebe's family, they could accept that Bailey had been going through a really hard time, but she was making moves to get back on track. And again, just like Phoebe's family, they could not make sense of how her death could have happened and the fact that she didn't leave a note. None of that sat right with them. When the police finally did take her cell phone, it was very obvious that Bailey and Aunt had been in constant contact the evening of her death. Aunt was at an event that night that I think Bailey had planned on attending with him, but they'd had that big fight the day before and it seems like they broke up um, or had decided to take some kind of a break. Later, Aunt would tell investigators that they hadn't really been in that serious of a relationship, even though Bailey had said that they were pretty serious and she considered him her boyfriend, but Aunt says that that's not the case, I guess. When Sabine Schneider contacted Aunt to let him know that she had passed away, he expressed his sympathy and added that he had been, quote, trying to help her blossom, end quote. I don't know any situation where a 51-year-old would need to help a 25-year-old, quote-unquote, blossom, but... I'll let you make of that what you would like. Aunt did not attend Bailey's memorial service. Bailey's parents pushed for a proper coroner's inquest, and in 2020, the state's deputy chief coroner, Caitlin English, felt that the investigators had done a proper job and ruled Bailey's death a suicide, saying, quote, I am satisfied that Ms. Schneider, while affected by drugs, alcohol, prescription medication, and cocaine, upset by relationship difficulties, made an impulsive decision to end her own life, end quote. I didn't see any more recent updates in Bailey's case, but I'm sure it's the same type of situation Phoebe's family dealt with, having to reluctantly accept the coroner's findings because, unfortunately, there's not much else that can be done. I debated talking about Bailey in this episode because I'm in no way trying to stir the pot or point fingers at anyone unnecessarily, but I did want to talk about Bailey because, in my opinion, it's an extremely odd coincidence. But more importantly, her story deserves to be told. I just hope that her family and loved ones are able to find some sense of peace, which I'm sure is nearly impossible in this situation. It bothers me so much that these wonderful young women had never had the chance to make the changes that they were trying to make to find their happiness. It's so unfortunate and it's so unfair and it just, it doesn't make sense. Like I understand and like we talked about in part one, you never know what's going on behind closed doors in someone's head. You never know how people are truly feeling. You might think you do, but sometimes you don't. But the problem here is that I think both Phoebe's family and maybe Bailey's family could have understood that their daughters were both going through something really hard and were dealing with a lot of stuff and depression and, you know, all of the things surrounding that. But they both were trying to make these changes. They had both been very open about trying to get better and trying to move forward and for them to both have died in such unusual circumstances, I don't know how you would ever let that go. I don't know how you would ever, like, accept that that was the case and move forward. So with that, we have reached the very frustrating end of this episode. My hope is that there is someone out there who knows something about Phoebe's death and that maybe someday they'll say something. She deserved so much better than what she got in the end and her family deserved so much better. 
and I hope someday they do get more answers. I know that true crime as a form of quote-unquote entertainment can be really hard to navigate sometimes, but my hope in sharing these stories is that people like Phoebe won't be forgotten and that their stories will be told. And in this case, the more people keeping an eye on these half-assed investigations, the less it will continue to happen because people will be paying attention and people will have to be accountable. It's a lot harder to sweep things under the rug when people pay attention because stuff like this unfortunately happens all the time. Whether or not a third party was involved in Phoebe's situation, there should have been a better investigation. And there was essentially no investigation done. And there was evidence that went missing and evidence that could have been taken that wasn't. And it happens constantly. There are plenty of cases that have been reopened and eventually solved because of people advocating for their loved ones. I'm only human, so it's impossible for me to get it right every single time, but it is so important to me to share these stories with compassion and correct facts. So I hope that you can see that that's what I'm trying to do here. So I hope that that is how you feel about true crime as well, and I hope that that's why you're here. And I hope that as a, like, true crime community, everyone can kind of keep pushing forward to see these changes, to help families who need petitions signed, and to help families get people behind them to make noise. Because apparently, if you have a lot of traction in the media, they will actually take your case seriously, which is ridiculous. Okay. Getting off my soapbox. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said earlier I wasn't going to rant again, but here I am. Okay. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the story. Thank you for letting me tell you Phoebe's story. I hope that you will subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts for my audio-only listeners. And until next time, take care of yourself, take care of your friends, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.